Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to... Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we continue our College Contender Series, naming our top 10 men's and women's teams entering the 2022 college tennis season. Of course, that season's going to be upon us before we know it. And part of our preview of that season is we also plan on interviewing every men's and women's Power 5 head coach throughout the course of this offseason. Now, did we get the order exactly correct? No. Conflicting schedules and all of the you know various things that go into a fall have gotten in the way of our planned release. But we are ready to rock and roll. We have banked enough interviews that we've got a steady stream of content coming for all of you listeners over the next six weeks. So what you're going to want to do to ensure that you don't miss out on any of the action, go hit the subscribe button to the Cracked Interviews podcast right now. You can find that podcast at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast, you can find every episode on our website, CrackRackets.com, as we filter through each and every Power 5 conference, talk to those men's and women's coaches that shape the college tennis world we see unfold each and every season. Of course, not only will we be recapping 2021 campaigns, previewing 2022, but we'll be tackling some of the biggest issues in college tennis as well, talking about things like the role of the fall. Where should the NCAA individual tournament be? Are there rule changes we can make, format changes we can make to benefit college tennis moving forward? Of course, it was a fascinating series. It has been a fascinating series, I should say, thus far. Very excited to continue those interviews over the next month as well. Again, all of those episodes available on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. And of course, joining us today on our College Contender Series is the man who may be the only person to listen to everyone. One of those interviews over the next month. He spent 3.9 days listening to this Great Shot podcast in 2021. You can round that up to four, given his appearances over the past month as well. Of course, you know him as the writer of the No Ad No Problem blog writer for our website, CrackRackets.com, returning champion here on our Crack Rackets shows, and my friend at Jay Tennis Tweets, better known as Jay, better known as John Parsons, Jay Hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing, my friend? I'm good at Jay Tweets Tennis. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's, I'm, I'm super excited uh, to talk about the team today. I will definitely be listening to all of those coaches' interviews. Um, does it still count as a pl- – can I still do plugs here? Because <laughs> now that I'm contributing. Um, but the ones that you've released so far have been, been so good. Um, I actually think this past weekend was – I'm complimenting the coaches. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, Ashworth and, and Schachterly mm-hmm. nailed it. Um, I feel, and I'm not just saying this because they both recently followed me on Twitter, um, <laughs> but I thought they both 
killed it. I'm now all in on Duke. Mm. I'm like, Duke is going to be awesome this year. <laughs> I Forget know. what we said in our in my write up in the podcast. Like all in on Duke. Um, but I thought I think you know you're asking similar questions to the coaches, which is good because it's helpful to hear like how they're all thinking through it. I thought Shacterly nailed it mm. and kind of just took the words right out of my mouth. I think we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about format tweaks and what those could look like. And I think it distracts from the broader problem. Ultimately, I think the product is really good, right? I mean, you always have that stat around like uh, people who attend a college tennis match, mm -hmm. they return, right? The product is good. It is just marketed poorly, right? You think about these, these, these matches and they're not an event that people want to go to. You think about the accessibility of the matches online. You think about the partnerships with TV providers and the ATP and WTA tour. Like there's so much more there. And I thought he really nailed it in terms of like the format stuff is like interesting to discuss, but let's not have it be a distraction from ultimately what we need to be doing, which is creating more viable partnerships and pathways through some of these more institutional um, organizations. Always appreciate a stat of mine being, you know, regurgitated back at me. You know that, uh, yeah, there's the 3.9 days showing. But I do want to also give you the opportunity, by the way, at some point, if we do it today, this podcast will hit the two-hour mark. But I'll ask <laughs> you all of those same questions because I'm curious to hear your thoughts. And I do feel bad for our listeners because – they're about to hear me regurgitate the same stats, the same jokes, the same questions about 100-plus times over the course of these interviews. That's why it is immensely reassuring. I appreciate you saying that, my friend, to hear you say the fact that I'm asking it all the same way is helpful. That's the reason I'm doing it is because I want to frame everything the same for every coach to see how they respond. But to your point, I feel bad because like there are points made by Shaq and Coach Ashworth that – you know, other coaches have already made and I'm already stealing points from other coaches. And just because we are trying to build up a queue of podcasts, you haven't heard those conversations yet. But the thing that has stood out the most to me and you know what, let's do this next week, a separate episode as well, where I'm going to ask you these things. We Maybe not next week, but over the course of the next month, we'll do a separate podcast on all of these things. Maybe once you've listened to like 10 of the interviews, um, not to give you homework. Sorry, my friend. Um, but, uh, you know, I am curious because uh, it, it is just like it's fascinating to hear from these coaches. And it is, you know, again, to do something like this, it, it to give them the opportunity to sound off. These are the conversations that are happening. And what stood out to me is how progressively thinking so many of these coaches are, and not in a political sense, because a lot of people hear progressive and they may have turned off the podcast, but just forward thinking that they are looking at ways to re-examine college tennis, take the positives, re-examine and reimagine the negatives and continue to build the product. And so often we get in the rat race here because we're trying to view it from a third party and you just, you know, you're not in the circle but doing this yep. in this interview process i feel as though i have joined the circle i've heard about the one page memos i've started hearing you know these conversations and that's been the thing that stuck with me the most is these conversations are happening every week yep um a hundred percent that was my takeaway as well um it's you know, a progressive been... group right shockingly so yeah um and i think that's one of the i mean um, all of the ideas aside, I do think there's so much benefit in being able to hear from these coaches directly um, and and have their candidness, have their openness um, is really helpful. I mean, obviously for for myself as a fan, but, you know, I think about parents and prospective players, just 
hearing these coaches is speak is really helpful. Um, I'll be honest. I'm shocked at how open they all are. Um, not, I, I, I didn't really think about it. Right. I didn't really think, um, because let's be honest, right. We all have some, some challenges with college tennis and we want to see it improving. And on the outside looking in, you might get frustrated by things not in, being enhanced and, it is clearly certainly not for these things not being thought about. Yeah, these things are being thought about very in depthly. They're clearly being um, batted around back and forth. Uh, I, I was buoyed by the fact that these coaches were so progressive and were so on the front lines, but on the flip side, wondering, okay, what are the systematic challenges that are preventing these? visionary coaches from getting this sort of things over the line. That's an excellent point. It's one I've tried to explore as well. And what I've come across is that for every, and you know, this is the same, I suppose, of every political block. And in a sense, that's what this is, is it's a plurality, not a majority, is that there are a lot of coaches on a similar page, but very few on the exact same page. And the problem is any change you implement will affect every athletic department differently. That's the other takeaway from this process is the resources aren't the same everywhere. And not every coach is looking at the same you know, sorts of opportunities that other coaches are able to provide, vice versa. Other coaches don't think to find the efficiencies because they have this wealth of resources that other coaches need to see. Case in point, the 500 rule is a fun one to talk about with a bunch of different coaches, a bunch of different conferences, and, you know, coaches who come from non-Power 5 backgrounds will often have different perspectives than those from the Power 5 it is a fascinating exercise. That's why we're very excited to get it rocking and rolling. That's why I was like, screw the fact that I don't have any single conference done. Let's just get moving. There's a lot of good content in here that I think will be worthwhile for people to hear. Uh, with all of that said, here's how I'll segue in. Well, actually, before we segue in, I will say an interesting conversation is one I had, and you'll hear it this week alongside of this podcast with Georgia women's head coach Jeff, Dunk- uh, Jeff Duncan. Excuse me, Jeff Wallace shows you where my head is at, and we started talking politics. Um, But Coach Wallace was excellent, excellent. I mean, they're all excellent. He was particularly excellent. So that is one I am looking forward to everyone hearing. But before we get into our number six Georgia Bulldogs, I do, Jay, want to give you the opportunity to chime in on two different things quickly. Let's start, and I know you tweeted it out, and you know, I always want to give you the chance to expand upon your tweets here on the show. Uh, but big news in college tennis world, Rich Bonfiglio going from Columbia to USC, taking the assistant job there, of course, Rich, has University of San Diego roots, as does USC head coach Brett Macy, and we had coach on the Cracked Interviews podcast on Monday to discuss his decision to bring in Coach Bonfiglio. And look, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. The recruiting classes Rich has been a part of, bringing August Holmgren to San Diego and, you know, the top 10 classes we've seen now repeatedly over at Columbia and his ability to get those kids to stay committed despite the fact that there was no Ivy League tennis in 2021. And of course, look, I mean, did he lose Samir Banerjee? Yes, but he had Samir Banerjee committed to Columbia. That's a kid who won a junior Grand Slam that speaks to his ability to find talent, uh, speaks to his ability to get them to commit to his program, and obviously how he deserves some credit as well. And by the way, brutal month for Coach Howard Endelman. And we are thinking about you, Coach, always. Howie, one of the best in the business. Always fun to get the chance to chat with. But 
look, we we talked about it last week, you know, the hypothetical Lincoln-Riley situation. Let's talk about this now. This is a hot shot, young assistant coach, certainly getting one of the premier jobs. I know, coach. you know, there are plenty of coaches who will say USC assistant job is better than 85% of head coaching jobs. This was a power move that, in my opinion, well-deserved for Rich. Curious what you think. Yeah, I mean, I, I tweeted out about that month that they've had, right? Losing Banerjee to Stanford and losing, um, you know, assistant coach to USC. Not Columbia, not a fan of the Pac-12 right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my initial reaction was feeling bad for Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, it was clear uh, what an impact um, Bonfiglio has had in his, what, two and a half, maybe three years mm-hmm. um, at, at Columbia. I think um, he's been a big part of of Cotson's development um and obviously with the recruiting classes um the success at the national indoors yeah exactly i mean he's he's been he's been someone who's 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 been very successful we would probably know more about him if we uh saw a full ivy league season last year right um so good get for for usc it also opens up another good job right the assistant at columbia um so it is fun. We talked about the the Lincoln Riley parallels. Um, you know, it's fun to see some of these jobs open up and, and some of these guys move around to open up other opportunities um, for coaches. A lot of these opportunities don't come around uh, very often. So, um, you know, a good get for him. I'm sure he will do. I mean, if you're able to get Banerjee to Columbia, think about the guys you can get to USC. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I do think, again, it's worth – just keeping this perspective in mind, and I'm sure I'll talk about this with Matt and Chris as well, but this really is a turning of the page for USC. Riley Smith is gone, and obviously he was the son of Peter Smith. He was around that program from the four Pete days all the way through playing last season. Yep. You know, Kukerman was an attachment to that era as well. And yeah, there are still Peter Smith guys on the roster, guys recruited by Peter, but now new coaching staff, those guys are gone. You know, again, you're bringing in uh, a new set of recruits as well over these next couple of seasons and a couple of new additions here late to the 2022 roster. Yeah. It's now the Macy era. And I will say this. I think it's fair to criticize Coach Macy's performance, at least in the California recruiting in his first, you know, two and a half seasons on the job. There are a couple guys who snuck out of Southern Cal and are going to Georgia or are going to other schools. And I'm not saying he didn't make up for it in other places, But, man, to get a recruiter like Rich, I really do think it's a perfect fit because I know Macy. He gets after it from the tennis perspective. That's a guy who, first and foremost, more than anything else, he wants to win. That's what's on his mind. How are we going to do it? How do we get fit enough to do that? The logistical side, the recruiting side, Rich helping to fill in those gaps— it's a great hire. Like, I think he nailed it. And, I, yeah. again, brutal loss for Columbia, who it's, you know, that's an appealing job, by the way. That's a sleeping giant. Exactly. Look at yep. the talent on the roster. Look at what they've done and how he will have his pick of options. And it's going to be interesting to see who emerges, particularly given the time frame. But this does feel like the changing of the guard at SC. It's now the Macy era. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I'm curious to hear um, his his reaction, so I'll listen to that Um yeah later um but i agree with that um and you know uh, a lot of guys who put their hat in the ring for the usc job i'm sure will also be putting their hat in the ring for that columbia job now um so looking forward to seeing what what usc does because you're right it is the macy era smith days feel gone and you know uh 
they have a lot to, to live up to there at USC, but they have all the resources and tools to do so. Yeah, and with the talent they've brought in over these past couple of, you know, again, weeks, weeks they're yeah. another one to sneak <laughs> out to that top 10 list. Like them, Wake Forest, you know, South Carolina, Georgia, Michigan, it's going to be Columbia, Harvard. You can start listing teams. It, I mean, you say every year it's not going to be an easy path to get to a top 16 seed, but I think we know our top eight. I cannot yeah. tell you what the order 9 through 16 is going to look like. It really just depends who gets to the national indoors, honestly, for right. rankings perspectives, because getting those wins, getting those reps, you sneak in even one win, that could make the difference at the end of the season. But speaking of wins, one other thing we want to do before we get to college contenders, another week, another successful one for college players on the pro circuit. Give me the rundown, Jay. Who succeeded? Where did they succeed? Who are we keeping an eye on? So uh, people are starting to make uh, make homes in, in Mexico. Cancun is having yeah. a lot of uh, 15Ks down there. Uh, Liam Draxel and Cleve Harper. Liam Draxel of Kentucky, Cleve Harper of Texas. Both Canadians just took the doubles title um, there in Cancun this past week. Uh, if you had told me Liam Draxel wins three titles uh, this year, I'm not sure I would have predicted they would all be in doubles, uh, but that has been the case. Um, so good win for the Canadian duo there. Um, shout out to Caroline Lample, uh, mm-hmm. former Stanford Cardinal who took two years away from tennis and is back on the tour. She's about to play her sixth uh, straight 15K in Cancun. Uh, made the semis of the one two weeks ago, made the finals this past week with some good wins over some top collegians. So always fun. I mean, we don't see that that often uh, where someone decides not to go pro right away and ends up coming back. So really excited to see that for her. Um, and then lastly, uh, Duarte Valle this week is playing in the um, Portugal Challenger. He got a main draw wild card there. Uh, surprisingly, that's his first uh, ATP Challenger main draw ever. So I'm um, looking forward to seeing what he does there. Yeah, it's, I mean, week after week after week, you can line it up. And you're right, it is the Mexico part of the season. and <laughs> Not know, a bad not... place to be during December. Yeah, exactly. There, there are worse places for futures to be held. But it is remarkable. And I know you're going to explore some things later on this month, either for our website, for no ad, no problem, hopefully for our website. But uh, no, it's going to be... I mean, yeah, it just, again, week after week, and that's something I've talked about with these coaches as well. It's almost a necessity to hold a college, uh, an ITF event on your campus, A, more cost-effective, and, you know, Brad Dancer does a really good job of explaining why they've doubled down on the pro events in Champaign, because B, these players want to be pros, and to be a pro, you have to compete against the pros, and it shows the level, and it shows these players are on the level, and... I don't remember which coach it was. I don't remember who said anything anymore. But one of them said, like, look, if you want to skip college, you need to be through the ITFs. You need to be playing challengers or, you know, 7,500K events because the best players in college will all walk from the top of the college rankings to the ITF circuit and have success nowadays. And we have seen that. And how do we make that success more marketable? How do we make that success more professionally viable? That's a big picture question for all of us to consider, I suppose, moving forward. But certainly the results are there now, Jay. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I thought Shakterly, I mean, this is top of mind, but just that what's that connective tissue between collegians who have success on the pro tour? How do you make that more of a symbiotic relationship um, versus right now it feels fairly uh, disconnected? Um, but yeah, a lot of great success uh, in the fall. Obviously, having the events on campus helps. That helps from a 
uh, recruiting standpoint to say, hey, we host a X event every year, you know. Um, so really good success um, for, for the pros, for the collegians on tour. Um, and we'll probably see a little bit less of that during the spring, but it, it will be interesting to see how many of these people um, try to flex it into their schedule in the spring. Um, I feel like that's always been the challenge, but it feels like there are just a lot of guys uh, and women particularly. I mean, Emma Navarro was ranked 237 in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, how do you start to manage what a, a more flexible pro and college schedule looks like in the spring? That'll be an open question um, given the the influx of pro events um, you know, next, uh, next year compared to 2020 and 2021. So, uh, lots to look forward to. I cannot wait. And we might release the Josh Goffey pod early just so you can hear it because he has so many thoughts on that exact topic and I will be stealing them moving forward. Um, but all right, with all of that said, let's get to the main event. Let's get to the reason we, of course, came together here this week, and that's to continue our College Contender Series, breaking down our top 10 men's and women's teams entering the 2022 season. Of course, on today's podcast, we talk about the number six women's team on our ranking list. And again, things are spicy here on the women's side in 2022. Yeah, we think we know who the top three are, but there's a lot of parity and a lot of depth everywhere else in women's college tennis. And when we look at our number six team, their team, if you followed women's college tennis closely over the past decade, two decades, three decades, really, you know, in my lifetime, you will know of the success of the Georgia Bulldogs. And you look at the tenure for head coach Jeff Wallace. Coach Wallace now, I believe his first season as head coach, I want to say came all the way back I want to say maybe 1986 was his first year at the helm. And you look since then, I think four total times have they, uh, excuse me, five, six, six total times, seven, final answer, seven total times have they made it, you know, only seven times since the start of his career have they not made the quarterfinals or further, of course, multiple national championships. They made the national finals as recently as 2019. Of course, this era of Georgia tennis fueled by Katarina Jokic, who may arguably have been the best player in women's college tennis over the past five seasons. And look, on paper, the 2021 campaign for the Georgia Bulldogs, they go 23-2 and overall on the season. They're two losses, 4-3 to North Carolina. They also lose to Virginia, fourth, uh, or excuse me, to NC State, 4-2 in the NCAA tournament. Those are two NCAA semifinalist teams. On paper, not a lot to argue, you know, hard to argue that anything but the season being a success. That said, I don't know, Jay, like 23-2 and two for this Georgia team, as good as they were, it just felt like the Jokic era ending in a quarterfinal was a bit of a disappointment. And that's not, again, to diminish what this team accomplished because they were exceptional. They only lost twice throughout the course of the year to two semifinalist teams that said, I don't know, Jay, it just, it was a weird year. Yeah. I mean, on paper, like an incredible season, um, 23 and two, um, they lost five team points throughout the sec season. Uh, like they won 10 of their 13 matches four Oh, um, they didn't drop a point in the sec tournament, um, three, four Oh shutouts. Um, I was looking at some of the breakdowns, all three of their doubles points above 75%, five of their six singles above 75%. 
I mean, completely dominant, but there feels like somewhat of an asterisk to me. Um, and I write about this in the, in the article. It was a pretty insulated season, right? They didn't play national indoors. That match against UNC um, was played without Scotty or Jones for UNC. Um, and at not playing national indoors kind of left us uh, unable to really measure measure them against national competition. Um, and it was a very down year in the SEC. I was looking, they only had two teams in 2021 in the round of 16. That was Georgia and Texas A&M. Past three years, they've had uh, four teams and, and six teams, right? This is, this is a very strong tennis conference. So yeah, extremely dominant on paper, but almost overranked a little bit, right? I mean, I think that was proven when they lost to North Carolina State, who then kind of got blown out um, in, in the next round. This is a team that probably wasn't the number, they, they were not the number two or number three team in the country last year. They were much closer to a six, seven, eight uh, type team, uh, which you saw in kind of their close win over UVA and then losing to NC State in the NCAAs. So I really think of every team last season, this is the one that suffered most from the lack of freedom in the schedule. Because I do think, and you made a point there, had this Georgia team played the national indoors, I just think it would have exposed them to the top competition more so because, to your point, it was a down year for the SEC, and thus they weren't tested the way they traditionally are by the Floridas of the world, by the Vanderbilts of the world. And that's not to say, you know, it was a resurgent Tennessee, a resurgent LSU team last season, and, you know, Texas A&M's always pretty solid nowadays. And, you know, again, there was talent in the SEC, but there wasn't elite, elite talent in the SEC the way there normally was, the way there was in the ACC and you're right it just felt like NC State was ready for that match more so than than Georgia was and you watch that NCAA round of 16 that Virginia match was a struggle I mean again that was a three hour three and a half four hour slugfest that yeah says 4-1 in the end but Navarro Jokic you know was uh, was a three-set match if memory serves me correct and just you know again uh, Liam and Natasha Subash they were battling on court number two and just up and down the lineup you look for Georgia in the end yeah it was you know 7-6-6-3 win at five and a three and three win at three and then they get that 7-6 decision in the third on two and yes Jokic was up 5-3 in the third and yes Kristofi was up 5-4 in the third but those matches were pushed deep and that was when you got the feeling and I was you know I think I was a little lower on Georgia entering the NCAA tournament last year than some others and it was because they just hadn't been tested at that length and I think if coach Wallace could redo any decision from last year it would be to play the national indoors and just give his girls a chance to see some of that top competition because again when you look at the statistics when you look on paper the only thing to criticize is the fact that, you know, Marta Gonzalez never finished a match at five singles. And that's not even yeah. a criticism. That's just a statement of fact. It's not like she was losing. She just likes her court time. And yeah. everyone else had already won by that yeah. time. I mean, again, they were 45 and 11 dual matches in doubles. That's an 80% win percentage. I think you take that every year of the season. They were 80 and 17 in singles matches. That's an 83% win percentage. 23 and 2 overall. You mentioned yeah. it. They dropped five points in the SEC dual match season. That's why I just keep coming back to, I think, their slip-up to NC State. I don't know if that's indicative. I mean, the glass half-full shows how strong the ACC was. Glass half-empty maybe shows it was a down year for the SEC. 
well, it was a down year for the SEC, right? Yeah. And the 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 numbers speak to that, and it was an up year for the ACC. Yeah. Uh, numbers speak to that as well. Um, and it was clear that like the creme de la creme of the SEC, which was Georgia, head and shoulders above everyone else in that conference, clearly um, was probably you know in that middle tier of of ACC schools. Um, I'm curious, did Coach Wallace mention the decision not to play indoors? Does that come up on the pod at all? You know, I in retrospect, I I should have asked him the question. I didn't. It's because we were okay. under the gun, and I was like, because he was like, I got thirty minutes, and so I was like, all right, I'll stretch it to forty, but I can't stretch it to an hour. <laughs> okay. um, and so that was one of the questions I threw on the burner. But I did ask him, like again, you look at the success you guys had had. Did quarterfinals feel a bit, you know, under like an underperformance? And he said, yeah, like we thought we had the goods, and I, I think they did have the goods. That's why to me it was a battle test thing. I think they thought they had the goods for sure. Yeah. Um, I sure. mean, when you when you run through a season like that, I mean, and you have Jokic at the, I mean, at the top of the lineup. I mean, uh, she's been number. She was number one in the 2019, 2020, and 2021 season. Mm-hmm. Right. That's you know as good as it gets. Um, so you feel good going in with any lineup with her at the top of the lineup. Um, but it, you know, being battle tested, you know, really pays off. Um, and was clear watching that UVA match that this was kind of the first dogfight that they had really gotten into in, in a while. And then, you know, when it came time to, to play NC State, I just don't think they were they were ready for that. Um, and, you know, I just – I think it was um, a little bit um, – you know, a little bit of a misconception in terms of uh, the, the strength of this team, which is um, – which is tough to to tr- translate into like, well, how does this team look when they lose several of their players from this past season? Where does that net out? Um, and it feels more in that kind of um, bottom of the top eight than it does certainly in that top four. Well, it's why this year's team is so fascinating because they did lose the core, a core of a team that had had as much success as any college tennis core over these past five years. I think if you, when you, we look back at this era, and it'll probably me and you being the ones doing the podcast looking back at this era, you'll say it was Georgia, it was North Carolina, it was Stanford. Those yep. were the teams that defined these five years. And I do think, yeah, Stanford was the one that ended up with the NCAA titles more often than not, but you know, Georgia and UNC were right there. And they played yeah. them as close as anyone. They were the ones who pushed them or beat them at the national indoors, whatever it may be. And I think that 2019 semifinal is about as good as it gets in college tennis, where you have, you know, one loss Georgia, one loss UNC, and I think one loss Stanford as well going into that final round. And yeah, it was just all to each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was just delightful. And, yeah. you know, again, you lose someone in Elena Christoffi who was 12-2 and two in dual matches last season, was a rock at the bottom of the lineup, 11-0 and 0 at six singles. You know what sucks is to lose one undefeated player. You know what makes it tougher is when you lose two, and that second undefeated player is Kat Jokic, who, you know, if Davitella wasn't the GOAT, Jokic would be the GOAT because they yeah. really both were that good over this past era. Uh, and, you know, Jokic 17-2 and two overall, by the way, last season. And what a disappointing ending for her in the NCAA. Just, you know, again, it felt like she deserved an NCAA. If I could have scripted last year's NCAA semifinal, probably would have been Navarro, Davitella, you know, EPS, and Jokic, and Jokic you know, yeah. as that fourth. And, by the way, Graham or Davitella, just a UNC fill-in and Jokic. And just, you know, again, for— 
Uh, her she was seventeen and zero at one singles last season. It's just like laughable. It's like you know, it's a good win percentage, seventeen and zero. Um, and you lose that, and then uh, of course you lose uh, Marta Gonzalez as well, who uh, you know again didn't have the biggest uh, win percentage success, didn't finish many matches last season, but was essential to that core. And uh, obviously you look at what she was able to do uh, throughout her career, like you're going to feel that loss. That said, as we, you know, I'm curious, obviously, if you have any reflections on that group, but, you know, B, as you look at this returning roster, there's still a nucleus remaining for what it's worth, right? Leah Ma, back in action. Morgan Kopich, back in action. And, you know, again, uh, Meg Kowalski is going to come back for another year as well. There is a talented nucleus returning this season, Jay, and it's still a wide-open SEC. Where are you with this Georgia returning roster? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not totally convinced that we're not going to see Jokic appear back up in the spring and like, find her like fifth year of eligibility. She only played four seasons. Um, Does that include but, 2020? One, uh, 2021, yeah, excuse she, me. She only played, so what, she played she 18, played. 19, 20, 21, and this would be the actual fourth? That's four. I don't think. 18, see, 19, 20, 21. See, I think Coach Wallace would have said I have something in the queue because I how did I'm, first of all, why did I not ask that question? That's just malpractice by me. Maybe I'm missing something. I'll go back and look, but that would be it totally be like she only had three years of eligibility to begin with. It could be a whole host <laughs> sure. of things, right? But you know, I'm just saying. Um, I don't hate it. I like that. Four seasons, Is that your hot right? take for this pod? Because that's the take of takes, Jay. You win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think that, you know, they made a, a big uh, going away for her as yeah. she deserved. And so um, I am not expecting that at all. But, you know, in the back of my mind, as I was particularly as I was writing the article, I was like, she only did play four seasons. Um, I know she had would have that fifth year, but um, yeah, I mean it's a it's a tough. Uh, this is the first team that we're talking about that's only returning three of their single starters from last season, right? In, in those three players that you mentioned, um, but the connective tissue is still there of the NCAA 2019 finalist, right? You still have um, Kowalski, who has just been a rock for them. She was at you know. She was at six uh, for her first two seasons. She moved up in the lineup, still continued really strong. You had Kopik, who wasn't playing in that NCAA finalist team, um, but you know she's she's stepped up last season and contributed more than she has in the past. Um, and then the third is Leah Ma, who wasn't part of the 2019 season. Her first year with them was the shortened 2020, um, and you know she had a really strong 2021. I mean, she, you know you had Jokic. At, 17 and 0 when you had Ma who I believe only lost, you know, two, three matches at number two. So you still have a a nucleus that you can rely on, particularly Kowalski is a senior, Kopik is a fifth year. You know, you have that experience. Um, and then you just bring in a whole host of of new faces um in the, you know, a, a talented freshman trio. Um, and so you you know, if, if you're a betting person, right, you kind of like that mix of, you know, you have experience and then you have the upside of these freshmen. Yeah, it's it's an interesting roster. And talking to Coach Wallace, one thing I did want to ask him because, 
you know, they only played five doubles pairings last year, and really they only played three doubles pairings during the dual match season that played more than one match together. And I do think that's where they're going to feel the loss the most because you lose Arsenal off of one doubles and Jokic. You lose Kristoffi off of that number two doubles team. You, yes, retain Kowalski and Ma, but, you know, do you want to split them up? This is something we explored earlier with Texas A&M. Do you want to split them up to expand, you know, that doubles experience? And I think we had just recorded the Texas A&M pod before I interviewed Coach Wallace. So I think I did ask him that question is, do you think about doing that here this fall? And you look at the fall stats and, yeah, they've gotten after it. They have yes. played, you know, I think throughout the course of the fall, something like 14 different teams as they're yeah. trying to find different fits. And, you know, he talked about, well, the big thing this fall is we really want to get our system right because we did feel like we were a little short in doubles last year, that we felt we could be a little bit better despite the success. And that has mm-hmm. been a focus for them this fall. I think that's where it's going to be interesting. Again, when you you lose a full number one doubles team, you always feel that sort of loss and you just lose contributors sort of everywhere. That's yep. something I'm looking for this fall. And again, 27 and 13, you win 68% of your doubles matches this fall. It's good. It's not great, but it's good. Um, yep. I it's, It might be great, honestly, to be honest here. I'm sick of playing, you know, glass half empty for this Georgia team. That said, I do like the Nucleus. Like, I do think from a depth perspective, this team, and that's why they're in our top 10, is that one through six, especially in a lot of those SEC matches, they're still just going to clean up at the bottom of the lineup. Yeah, you mentioned the consistency in doubles um, and then all of the pairings that they've had in the fall already. Uh, one of the the staples of a, of a Jeff Wallace lineup is that it stays the same. I mean, if you look <laughs> at their if you look at the records and the season stats, I mean... It's like you start at one, you stay at one, right? You start at four, mm-hmm. you're staying at four. Uh, I think that's going to be a lot harder to achieve this year. So maybe we'll see a little bit more fluidity between uh, between spots, particularly in doubles. As they still look to find three pairs and you have freshmen who are looking to contribute. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's um, they are deep, particularly the four, five, and six. But I do wonder about seven and eight. And so I read about this in, in the article. I, there is a concern for me around um, around health, and maybe this is because I just listened to the the TCU um, <laughs> episode where I think you know if there was a drinking game for every time you said health, you'd be on the floor. Um, <laughs> but this this is a team that I worry about that with, right? If one of Ma Kowalski or Kopic um, are out and everyone moves up, then that four, five, and six. You know, I don't know how strong it is against kind of the best teams in the country. Um, but again, that all really depends on on two factors. One is your returners and two is these incoming freshmen. Well, if you don't mind, I'll ask you to pull up the team UTRs by conference, see where Georgia ranks amongst their contemporaries. But you're absolutely right. In talking to Coach Wallace, he emphasized the fact that it's very interesting. They almost have two different teams on their Mm -hmm. roster this season because there's not really, you know, again, that middle class of players. Yeah, you know, Liam Oz, a junior, and, you know, Anya Hurdle's a junior, but, you know, no sophomores on this roster. You've got a bunch of freshmen and then really a bunch of seniors or players who have been through the ringer together and, you know, bridging the gap between those two groups. That's the central challenge for Coach Wallace here this fall. And, you know, again, I want to ask you about the freshmen because it's worth noting they do, according to Tennis Recruiting, bring in the number four recruiting class in the nation in 2021. By the way, I did a deep dive, and here's another – sorry to do this for you if you're bored. 
go back, look at that 2016-2017 recruiting class. It's because I did an interview with Simon Earnshaw, and he goes, hey, go look back at the recruiting classes, see how wrong they were about Rodgers and Smith and all this different stuff. And then I go back and look at the recruiting class. You know, McKenna Jones was, I think, committed to Arkansas at one point or certainly not committed to North Carolina and then like I saw Casper Zook in the Pepperdine queue and I just went on a deep dive it's very very fun it would be fun to re-examine those recruiting classes and say five years later which class played out the best not to give you a homework assignment but here's your homework assignment Uh, but it's worth noting in this recruiting class no Americans and that's not a criticism that's just a statement to say you know again did you get to see them all play in San Diego or on the Colette right. Lewis tour? Not necessarily. Um, curious your thoughts on the newcomers. Curious where this roster stands compared to the SEC. Yeah, so within, I mean, so they're from a UTR perspective, they're number one within the SEC um, by a so, significant margin. What are we talking? By so they're sixty four point two nine, and A and M women are sixty three point sixty four. Okay, so within point so, eight, not too big of a blowout. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of drops off there with Florida at 63, Tennessee mm-hmm. 62.5. Um, so I haven't I haven't audited all these. I know there's some, you know, scenarios where there might be players Brandstein missing. Brandstein but... should probably be a 14. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, they're, so they're, they're at the top, and a lot of that is because of um, some of the incoming freshmen. Um, it is interesting to me that Georgia – so heavily relies on international recruits and if you look at their upcoming classes as well on some of the you know 2022 commits that that trend is continuing versus you look at um kind of their peers right of a unc or of a stanford much more heavily american um so that's been Mm -hmm. that's been surprising to me and um, I wonder if Georgia's getting boxed out a little bit in some of the top tier American recruiting conversations. Um, but speaking of, of international recruits, right? So they bring in three, um, all with plenty of international junior experience. Um, so they've all been ranked within the ITF's junior rankings, top 31. <laughs> it wasn't as clean as top 30, but top 31. I'll take um, it. Yeah, you know we it. like to exactly. dirty up the lists here. You know yeah, so. I'll sneak in a top 26 club if necessary. Yeah, so we have a top 31 club. <laughs> I like that. Um, and, I mean, that's headlined by uh, Mel Riasco, um, who we were able to see a little bit more of uh, in San Diego at the ITA National Fall Championships. Um, so, you know, she comes in. She's the winningest player of the fall for them. I think, believe she's 12-3. and three. You know, she won the, the, the regional there. Um, and has had some really good ranked wins. You know, she beat Lisa Czar. She beat Fiquet of Ole Miss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's a she's a lefty, as as you noted. Um, <laughs> so uh, she kind of leads the the freshman classes of the best ball. Uh, she's joined by uh, Grant and uh, Nerundun, both again top thirty one junior recruits. Um, I would say Grant has had the kind of one of the second best falls uh, for them. She's also racked up about ten wins. Um, she kind of has cleaned up with against like other SEC bottom of the lineup types, right? So you're playing like the Alabama number five or number six, and uh, she's kind of steamrolled through those. So um, she clearly has the level to contribute. And then Narundun is, is eight and eight this fall, and she's kind of struggled um, a little bit more. So I would say that you're looking at Riasco and Grant as kind of the main contributors from this freshman class. Yeah, I mean, again, you look for Mel Riasco, what she's been able to do here uh, over the course of the fall. It's just 
the level of victories that she's earned again to to beat you know people like a Petra Huel to beat a Lisa Czar to beat a Brianna Schvetz those yep. are top two of the lineup quality wins and certainly yep. the wins she's going to have to earn to be up there and you know it's interesting for Leah Ma you look at her fall it's been a relatively quiet fall and yeah. you know again she's She's been pretty solid, earned a top 80 win over UCF and, you know, three sets with Makarova, close loss to Vicky Flores as well. Hasn't been the greatest fall for her, but I think she's earned the benefit of the doubt at this point. The thing is, there is no Katarina Jokic in this lineup anymore, and it does feel like they've got, you know, maybe seven players who could all thrive anywhere from two to six, and they're all going to have relative degrees of success. The question is, who steps up and play number one? And that obviously gets us to our possible lineups here on this roster. Again, you talk about the fall success here for uh, the Georgia Bulldogs. Pretty good fall. You know, 62-35 and overall in singles matches. You're winning 64% of your matches. Coppich is 10-4. and Grant is 10-3. and Hurdle's 7-2. and And then, of course, you know, again, players like Kowalski, Riasco, Ma, who you probably think fill out the top of your lineup, all have pretty solid falls as well. You're right. It's funny to hear you say that point. I didn't really think about it. I mean, Anya Hurdle had a good fall, seven and two, certainly, and Clayton, yeah. rough one for her, two and seven. But where, where do you see this lineup going? It's way too early to project doubles, and Coach Wallace has made clear he doesn't even know what their doubles lineup is going to be now. But when you look yeah. at this singles, do you think there's a clear top three, bottom three? What's your look at it? Oof, um, not not particularly. I think so. I think two notes. I think um, Anya Hurdle had a really good fall both in the collegiate ranks right seven and two mm-hmm. um but also success on the itf circuit um mm-hmm. so that was really great to see she started the 2020 season she was you know number one with uh Jokic and doubles mm-hmm. um she basically had to sit out the entire 2021 season with some, some some health issues so it was just good to see her playing a lot of matches this summer and this fall quickly uh, her two losses mel riasco her teammate two and two yep. and daria Freeman zero oh and one but like right. The, if those are your two losses, you had a pretty good fall. Yes. Um, and she had, you know, some good wins on the ITF circuit as well. She, I know she lost a close three-setter yes. to um, uh, Una Orpana of Oklahoma yeah. State, who's who's really good. Um, so that was a – that was – that happened, and that kind of made me say, okay, this Georgia team might be filling out in a way that they need to because if you have that success at a four or a five, that kind of shores up the bottom of the lineup. One other note on Riasco – um, I don't know how she has fit this in, but she has been playing 25 Ks throughout the fall as well um, in Ecuador, in Colombia, and most recently in, in Mexico. Um, so, and she made the semifinals of two, 20, two of those 25 Ks. So um, she's having pro success as well. And honestly, I think this is a player that you put at number one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you're Coach Wallace, you really like that lineup consistency of ma kowalski Kopic, two three and four and to be honest i'm not sure leah ma is would have much success at number one particularly based on her fall results like she's kind of losing those number one type matchups mm-hmm. and if you slot in riasco is she going to be a Jokic? absolutely not um can she have success like yeah i mean she's had some good fall success she's had good pro success I think you slot her in there and you keep a lot of the consistency from last season. Yeah, that's a very convincing argument to make for the singles lineup. 
again, you're never going to replace a Kat Jokic, but no. certainly – and actually you're confused. That's actually Rel Miasco having all of that success, not Mel Riasco. That's Rel Miasco. So it's, it's her alter ego that goes out on the pro tour and dominates, yeah, in case you didn't Got know. But, okay. Well, you um, know, it's funny because uh, Universal Tennis has two Mel Riascos. They have Rel? like one – yeah, really? one with Georgia and they have one – I'm like <laughs> – Gotta clean this one up, but yeah, yeah I'm like wait a minute, like who's that's playing funny. what? No, yeah. yeah, it's um, it it is an interesting lineup because I do think this team is good, and you look at the senior experience come NCAA tournament. I do not want to be on the other side of net of Met Kowalski, who is going right. to come out and have that fire, and she is one of the senior leaders you would want leading your team if you are any coach in the country. And that's not yep. to be disrespectful, by the way, to the other seniors on this roster as well. Certainly, again, you look at the talent, whether it's a Kopich, whether it's, you know, again, a Clayton or just the players who have been through the ringer here. There is experience on this roster. At the same time, I do wonder about the upside. Like what, you know, again, it, it's funny when you look at a team like Texas A&M that brings in, you know, a bunch of new talent as well outside of, uh, you know, the top of their lineup, Goldsmith and Makarova. It's just like what are, you know, what which team ages quicker throughout the course yeah. of the regular season. I think these two are going to exchange some blows throughout the course of the year as well. That would probably be my hot take is that, Georgia's going to lose an SEC match this season. Like, I do think this young team can get slipped up once or twice throughout the course of the year. That said, you look at, you know, the ITA kickoff weekend for Georgia. They are back into this event, and, you know, they've got Iowa coming to town. They've got Mississippi State coming to town. They've got North Florida coming to town. Certainly, you think with their depth, those are all matches that they should be able to win regardless of who they are playing although you know you favor noel at number one singles against anyone in that sure. field and at that point you like your one point you roll out the balls go from there but you know again looking at this georgia team north carolina is back on the schedule i don't think they've released any of the other non-conference stuff quite yet but yeah you know first match of the year though yeah right match. that's and that's a test and you love that yeah. sort of decision uh and again they are playing the indoors this season where are you in terms of, you know, national outlook, where they're going to finish in the conference, how they can do at the national indoors to start the season? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's tough, right? Um, you know, I do think um, I do think they get through that kickoff weekend fairly uh, straightforward. I don't think this is a one to circle. Um, uh, I, they probably take some lumps at the indoors, right? Um, particularly given, um, you know, I know Kowalski, I, she – struggled a little bit in the fall. I think that was due to not playing as much in the summer. Um, so hopefully she rounds into form for them. Um, you know, a question mark on just how quickly these freshmen can round into form. I think you, you said it right. It's kind of like a, an arms race for who can beat each other out and developing their freshmen and kind of getting their freshmen locked in in doubles. Um, I think it's a guarantee essentially that they'll lose one or more uh, SEC matches. Um, I think one, if Riasco continues to play ITF events throughout the year, does she miss a match? Right. Or if, like I said, if injuries take someone out, like I don't think they have as much depth at seven and eight. And so, you know, I think it, that's pretty much a guarantee. You know, I do think that they're still at the top of the sec with Texas A&M mm -hmm. um, with a shout out to, to Florida, who's probably looking to try and get back in the top of the sec um so i think they probably net out at like a, a, a tie in terms of the sec regular season um and i think this is a team that does not win the sec tournament title like they did last year 
Um, so that's where I have them in, in kind of the regular season and the, the conference. I'm going to remove Texas from this equation because they would be the obvious answer here. But let's say Oklahoma is in the SEC already. Would mm-hmm. you have picked them to win one conference title this year? Yes. Yes? That would have yes. been the spicy take, right? Um. Well, it would have been spicy on paper for sure. Yeah. Um. Well, and I guess my answer is, so you can do that, but if you put this team in the Big 12, would you pick them to win it right away? And the answer is no. And so I guess just the point I'm trying to say here is more largely like this isn't your Georgia, you know, this isn't your father's Georgia team, right? This isn't just the one that's going to sleepwalk through the SEC title and you can just pencil them into the NCAA quarterfinal. I do think this team's going to have to work for it a bit more. And that's why I'm fascinated to see uh, the rest of the 2022 schedule because, I do think that was one of the lessons from last year. It's like, we got to play more. We got to play the best teams more frequently. And I do think this team, as much as anyone, will benefit from qualifying for the national indoors, getting those freshmen yes. high, high quality reps and throughout the SEC season again, getting a Riasco to play one. She's going to be even better come May yep. than she is already. And just, you know, again, if, if they can stay healthy. This is a team that will not look at a North Carolina and be afraid, that will not look at a Texas or a Pepperdine and think that, you know, they'll look at a Pepperdine and say, please, you're Pepperdine. It's cute. You made a final. We host the finals. Like we are Georgia. And I do think the more closely I follow college tennis over the years, the more closely that intangible factor matters. And I do think this team has a you know a healthy dose of that because you just can't fake what you know Kowalski and Ma and Kopic have been through. But at the same time, I mean, let's get to the predictions. I've already used up three of my eight quarterfinal spots. I think I have to go round of sixteen to, for this Georgia team because a you talk about the depth. I do think they are more susceptible to an injury than some of the other teams. And after hearing, you're right, talking to Coach Ashworth, I'm just higher on Duke now than I was before. I'm higher on California than I was before. Cal, excuse me. And Oklahoma's very good. Michigan's very good. There are a lot of very, you know, UCF's still going to be solid this season. NC State, I just talked to Coach Earnshaw, and, you know, he might come after us, Jay. He goes after you by name (laughs) a couple of times in the podcast as well, which, by the way, that's when you've officially made it. When Coach start (laughs) name-dropping you in the pod, take that as a badge of honor my friend hey i i saw lana smith on crutches that did not go unnoticed yeah exactly worth mentioning and so (laughs) all of this is to say i agree with you i think this team wins a conference title whether it's the tournament title or the regular season title i've yet to decide i know they're going to qualify for the national indoors i actually think they could sneak off a semifinal run there and just look super impressive early in the season build up that number four ranking but then i could see them coming across a cal in the round of 16 or a michigan in the round of 16 or just like an underseeded acc team that knocks them off once again in that round because i do still like the acc a little bit more than i like the sec this season i like the depth at the top of the pac 12 stanford usc cal ucla a little bit more than the top of the sec this season as well i think that plays a factor again i'm going to say this team does sneak out a conference crown but loses in the nta round of 16 what says huge although if they host that round which it sounds like that's what the format's going to be we're back to the round of 16 hosting don't make that face uh we're back to the round of 16 hosting that always helps this team doesn't lose at home very frequently if ever but i do think this team slips up around a 16 what say you 
Yeah, I mean, I think so. One part that we haven't talked about with Jokic leaving is it's either going to go one, it's either going to go one of two ways, right? It's going to really hurt them or it's going to bring them together because they're going to have to step up in a way that they haven't necessarily had to in the past. I think we've seen teams go, you know, both ways when they lose just a dominant number one. I feel confident that, you know, a Kowalski and, and a Kopic can kind of round this team into form and say, hey, now we have to step up, right? We can't rely on on Jokic. Um, it's tough because I do think that they're going to be skirting that top eight line, right? And so, you know, it really depends on, like, do they get those wins at the indoors? What does their schedule look like? I, I, They could fall kind of victim of, hey, let's schedule Florida State. Let's schedule Georgia Tech, which they usually do. Well, if those teams aren't, you know, where they were last season, then those aren't going to be the ranked wins that they necessarily need. Um, So I am going to ride this team to the quarterfinals. Um, You know, I think both Riasco and Grant have some upside. Um, I think they're going to be better outdoors than they will be indoors. Uh, The question really just becomes where do they fall within the rankings? Does the SEC give them the the ranking padding that they need? It it might not this year Um, because that just, we've talked about this before the eight, Mm -hmm. like the eight through 16, it's going to be brutal. Uh, well, I really so think, and this year it's it's four through sixteen. Four like, through sixteen, I, like, but if you're, yeah, exactly. maybe yeah. five. But like seriously, all these top teams outside yeah. of three in particular that we'll get to, like right. those three, I'm certain of. And even you know, watching them in the fall, I was uh, my confidence went up. But now with some time passed, like I'm less certain about team number three. Uh, you know, I, or I suppose four teams. With the third team we haven't mentioned yet, you guys all know my thoughts on Stanford this year. But, yeah. like, outside of those, sure, I have no idea what UCLA's bottom half of the lineup is going to look like. No I have idea. no idea what to make of any of these ACC teams from, you know, the NC State, Georgia Tech, Duke, Virginias of the world. How good will they be after last season? They were the standard in yep. college tennis. And just, like, I think this Georgia team slides right into that category. Uh, yeah, right. So if you're in that seven to ten matchup, yeah. um, you better be rough. at home, right? Well, um, I won't be able to watch them in person, so that's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, I you know, I we don't know a lot about a lot of these teams. We do know something about this Georgia team. We do know the nucleus that's returning. We know the upside of uh, of Riasco, who's looked good this fall. Um, and so it's mo- a little bit of a more known quantity. Um, I would say if I'm not riding them to the quarterfinals, then I don't know what, what other team I'm, I'm replacing them with necessarily. So I do have them in the quarterfinal. It's fair. And look, for the past nine years, Georgia's finished the year ranked in the top eight nationally. 30 of the 34 seasons for Coach Wells, they finished top 10. That's ridiculous. Yeah. That's just – that's as good as it gets in college tennis. That's a living legend. And it's interesting. I was thinking about it. Would you say Coach Wallace and Coach Ashworth are two of the five best coaches in women's college tennis history? Like, is it unreasonable to say that at this point? So I was looking that up because uh, Wallace. I'm so is... happy you're the one person I could ask that question. And be like, so I actually do have a thought on this. <laughs> I have a, yeah. So Wallace, uh, I mean, he's the most, he's the winningest active coach, right? Okay. Something like 773 career victories. Stupid. Wild. One of two coaches with over 750. Who's the I other think... one? Can I guess? It's got to be Dick Gould. Well, so he's men. I think oh. it was just, I was looking at just women. Oh, for but, women's? Got it, gotcha. 
but I don't actually know the name. So okay. um, I'll have to look that one up. It's got to be Layla or, or so, it's got to be someone. Yeah. It, you know, so I, we'll pause on that. I would yeah. say we would just need to like um, whittle the conversation down to like active. Sure. Right. Because as I was looking at the list, I was like, oh, I'm like who was this William and Mary coach from like 1920 <laughs> to like 1960. Trinity, exactly. I was gonna have no idea. Um, but yeah, so I mean, Wallace, Ashworth, um, Lily, uh, those, uh, Roland, I think get, gets up in yeah. there. Um, but those are, they're all in the top five. For and sure. Stella, you know, is on pace. I'm sure her career, yeah. I suppose, oh, not yeah, as long pace, as the others. Sure. Yeah. I wonder um, Ronnie's got to be up there on that list, right? Or near somewhere around that list. Who? She's been Ronnie Bernstein. Oh, she's yeah. been yeah, who? You yeah, your exactly. I was tongue. like Ronnie Schneider. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's on the list. Uh, um, no, it. You're. I mean, again, he's on the short list. He is the winningest. Winningest again. He that's, is the winning. I mean, it, I was like, that's a lot of matches. Yeah, um, seven hundred plus. That's a lot of seasons. So I don't. Someone's tenure, Jamie Ashworth. This is who it was, and mm-hmm. I guess that pods out. I told him because he started in '94, right? I'm like, your career is one Alex Gruskin. Yeah. Um, that's how long these guys have been doing it, and that's how much success they have had. And again, yeah. what's so notable, and I think Jeff has done such a good job of this in particular, is just the way they adapt to the modern game. And neither guy has lost a step, right? And it would have been possible for both of those people, prisoners of the era that they first came up in, do you get stuck in those ways? Do you not adjust recruiting? Do you not adjust your tactics? I think both have. And again, hearing them, the progressive mindset they have towards college tennis is what has afforded them that success. Yeah, and it has to be what's kept them successful right through these years, right? Otherwise, if you're not keeping up, you're going to get churned out. Um, I mean, not to to make this about Ashworth, I just haven't listened to, to Wallace yet. Um, but that was one of my takeaways, right? I was yeah. like, to be in this game so long. And honestly, I mean, you see this in, in tennis more broadly outside of college tennis. Um, I think he might've even said it. He was like, we can't treat things so sacrosanct. And I was yes. like, yes, that yeah, is I know. like, that is right up my alley. Um, I'm afraid so- I'm either going to get in so much trouble with the ITA that it's over with me for this series, or there's going to be like six rule changes. And it's just like, okay, <laughs> we now officially had a town hall. We've heard from all the power fives. Here's the four concrete items we're going with. Yeah, the one, the like the only one they'll adopt is the coaches uh, play one point instead of the coin toss, <laughs> but, <laughs> or the timeout. Like yeah. that's it. That's all we get. Yeah. Um, but no, all right. Well, with all of that said, any final thoughts on these Georgia Bulldogs as you look towards their 2022 season? Um, I mean, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited, right? I mean, this is like a really interesting roster. It's interesting mix. Um, a lot of new faces. Um, so we'll see. Um, you know, it's always exciting to see what happened, how a team reacts when they lose uh, a player like Jokic. So, um, you know, should be a lot of success in Athens. I'm sure they'll have a lot of, uh, winning to do there. Um, and looking forward to, to seeing more of them in the spring. I love it. Well then with all of that said, again, our number six team, the Georgia Bulldogs, did I cut you off? Did you have one more thing? No, I was going to say that that UNC match is literally next month. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, so it's in four close. weeks away. Yeah, it's not like, four weeks. It's like January twenty second. But I mean, that's January. That is yeah, next six month. weeks. Six yeah. weeks away. It's crazy to think we've already reached that time, but we are almost there. And again, 
You want to hear more on these Georgia Bulldogs, you can read about them, Jace Peace, on our website, CrackedRackets.com. You can learn more about them in our Cracked Rackets YouTube episode about them. And, of course, you can hear from Georgia women's tennis head coach Jeff Wallace as well on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. Now, before we go, one last thing, of course, I have to do again. Let's offer you the chance to share your number six team on the men's side. Now, I think we have the same top six, but this is where things get interesting, and I I am fascinated to hear where you go from here because now it's toss-up time. I think this is where the fun begins. Jay's number six men's preseason team is? The Virginia Cavaliers. Oh, I love it. Make the case. So I will caveat this. Um, I, I mentioned this on the last pod. I have the luxury of you know tweaking my, my lineup uh, post-fall which you all do not. Um, and so there is one team I will rename Nameless who uh, jumped above UVA based on some fall results. So I will um, we'll leave that to be. But so UVA at six, um, here's why. Um, I have a bad taste in my – so I am a UVA alum, so I'm allowed to say this. I have a bad taste in my mouth with Am I matchup. not allowed to say this? I'm just curious. As a non-UVA alum but in the circle. I mean, you're a bigger UVA fan than I am. <laughs> you're, like, you're allowed to say whatever you want. Um, but um, I, you know, I just don't want, you know, I don't want the angry DMs. Although I love a DM, DM me um, yeah. and we can engage. But I have a very sour taste in my mouth from their loss to USC. Um, particularly a super underwhelming performance from von der Schulenberg against Riley Smith, compounded by the way that Braswell beat Riley Smith the next day. So I'm still sour on this team a little bit. Um, the disappointing fall results of both Botzer and Jackson Allen have also made me a much less high on this team than I was at the start of the fall. Um, I, I do not know what Botzer's level is going to be, but they are certainly going to have to find room for him outside of the number one spot. Um, and Jackson Allen is really not playing well in singles. And even if he was just a dubs contributor, I'm, not seeing that. So, I mean, the plus side is Rodesh uh, has had a really good fall, but is that a good enough to step into the number one position and, and do well against these top teams? I don't know. And Yaki's had a really good summer and fall, um, but overall just not as confident with them. Um, and I think they have a much narrower path to victory than some of these other teams. I think they could struggle in dubs. Um and their seven, eight, and nine is less strong than some of the teams that have ranked above them. Um, if they were to to to, to suffer an injury, so um, we'll see. I mean, sophomore jumps are, are real, and we've already seen one from Rodash. We've seen one from Minyaki. Um, so we'll have to see. The big question marks for me are um, Doc Vaughn and Botzer. Yeah, it, it, I agree with you. Our six is Ohio State. If I could redo it, I would have switched them with Virginia, who's our number five. Spoiler alert there for all of you listening. But you made it to the hour five-minute mark, so you deserve that spoiler. Yeah. So I, yeah. All so the, I had, uh, for the prior. fall concerns, you, you listed it. If Allen bots are click, this team is top five, Virginia-wise. If they don't click, TCU's looming, Stanford's yep. looming. All these other teams are looming to swoop that spot right away. Now, I do think, again, the best version of this team— Virginia is a top five team after the fall. I think we will. And I, I'm just going to say this now. I'm going to convince Matt and Chris, we're going to switch it to Ohio state. Number five, Virginia, number six, uh, because 
you're right and they're wrong, and we'll call that the J contribution. Don't worry, I'll cite you, but <laughs> I a very good call. Yeah. Uh, and Ohio State was the team I was um, uh, anonymizing earlier, uh, the team that, that that jumped them based on the fall results. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, then, with all of that set, any final thoughts before we wrap today's show? That's it. Go Blue. How <laughs> do you like that Big Ten championship? That was a blowout. Um, was it difficult for you to get through this uh, Georgia pod knowing your matchup uh, in Miami? Not in the slightest. <laughs> I am very excited for the matchup. I was thinking about it again. This. Do you want to hear the most arrogant thing? Another gift at the 106 mark? Sure. for our listeners so everyone in the stands was super excited right because michigan's won a big 10 title and we haven't yep. won one in football since 2004 and ever you know i'm by some people who are crying in the stands and all like i could think happiness about this, yeah tears of oh, joy okay. tears of joy and all i could think to those people is you know what and I, it was because doubles partner partner in crime max rothman was in attendance with me and i was like you guys are watching a title you have no – imagine what it's like to win one. I was like, you guys don't even understand. I was like, yeah, I know what Jim Harbaugh is going through right now. I was like, the elation on his face where he's like, thank God we got this done. Where you're just almost happier that you actually did it with all the emotional energy you expended into thinking about doing it. And you're just like, thank God that wasn't a waste of time. I could see – like unless you felt that relief, I don't think you can fully understand it on a person's face. And I was like – I was looking at Jim Harbaugh. I'm like, Max – that was my face. I was like, you know it, where I just couldn't stop laughing for like three weeks in a row because I was like, yeah, we did it. Um, that was what Jim Harbaugh looked like, and all I could think to the people is to make fun of them and say, you guys just watched. Like, you don't even understand. So that's where I was. And I think there was Little some— Little did they know. Yeah, they exactly. The, the most arrogant man was— Jim Harbaugh of college tennis. Yeah, exactly. The most arrogant <laughs> man— No, of club tennis. Of club tennis, not even college. Um, but yeah, it was, it was delightful. It was uh, it was it was very very fun. I, there's the first time again living in Indianapolis has had a benefit, and so uh, I certainly well, uh, can't complain. Well, where does it stack rank now? It's <sighs> a good question. It probably holds. I'd say it holds where it was. I don't think I gained anything from this weekend that I didn't get from Ohio State. Interesting. Because like okay. we, I knew we were going to blow them out, and we did. It was very okay. cool to see the halfback pass from Donovan Edwards and where we were seated. Like You were just like, there's no way he pitches it that far back. And then you saw Roman Wilson running, and you're like, oh, my God, he's going to throw it. Oh, my God, he threw a 70-yard bomb. And you're just like, oh, my God, we're dominating this game. It was very fun to see all of those people. Good weekend at the bars for me, for sure. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like Virginia 2013. Still <laughs> rocking with the Hoos. Um, all right, but before we go, prediction for Michigan-Georgia? Uh, they're good. Their defense is fast. Their corners are fast. Their defensive line is big and fast. Their linebackers can scoot. Their quarterback can move. Their receivers are big and strong, and one of them's particularly quick. They have an excellent tight end, good running backs. But Michigan's actually good. Like, our <laughs> offensive line is dominant. We're not good. We're not great. We're dominant. And it's two dominant forces going head-to-head. -head. I think our line's better than Alabama's. Theirs had success, but they're going to be very angry going into that match, uh, match, that game. So it's going to be interesting. They definitely have a dynamic offense, but it's not that dynamic. And we play such good assignment football, which is really what it takes to beat a team like Georgia because Kirby Smart teams are so disciplined. We can win. We can win. Like, Give me a score. absolutely. Give me a score. 27 21 Michigan. 
We're going to win. We're going to win that football game. We're going to go to the national championship, and it's going to be my worst nightmare come to fruition because I <laughs> love – you know me. I gravitate towards excellence. That's why you're on this podcast. I don't know why Chris is on the podcast, but I love Alabama football. Oh, I just love how good they are. I just – like, again, there's – I like people who have solved the code to winning because you're like, how do you do that? And they have solved it. And they, I mean, oh my God, their receivers are fast. (laughs) And so, I mean, so is Ohio State though. Anyways, was that the answer you were looking for? You asked the the question. 27-21. Yeah, I told Coach Macy I'm working on being more concise heading heading into 2022. I was like, that's my offseason plan. Um, Not going well so far. But, no, with all of that said, uh, again, if you've missed any of the episodes of our College Contender Series, you can catch up on them all on our website, CrackRackets.com. Of course, you can like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, the Cracked Interviews Podcast, Mini Break Podcast, our YouTube channel to ensure you don't miss out on any of our content. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, for the f*** of any job they do day in, day out. Shout-out, as always, to UJ for joining me on the show as well and with that said for my phenomenal co-host john parsons who you can find at j tweets tennis for our super producers fliegner and westoff and from all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin jay what do we tell the people hey great shot and we will see you all next week number six georgia we hope you all enjoyed When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.